primary care knowledge boost, an approach to rare diseases in primary care. Welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Thank you so much for joining us and Happy New Year. I think our last episode went out after the New Year, but Happy New Year to everyone. Um, today we're talking to GP Dr. David Bartlett, who works with the Neuroendocrine Cancer UK charity, and GP Will Evans, who's a researcher specialising in rare diseases as well as a GP as well. Yeah, um, and um, we, we cover um, quite broadly some definitions about rare diseases, why the topic is important for everyone in primary care, and how rare diseases can potentially be categorised. We then talk about where neuroendocrine cancers fit into the landscape, and David and Will give us some great tips on how primary care clinicians can actually um, help with the diagnosis of rare diseases without um, over-investigating and discussing um, the difficulty in balancing over-investigation with finding rare diseases in primary care. Yeah, a very difficult balance and there's an absolute recognition that this is not uh, easy, um, but it's really nice getting their experiences and their personal accounts as well as some of the data behind it. Um, so we'll be back at the end to share our learning points. Enjoy our talk. Thank you both so, so much for joining us. We're really excited to be chatting to you about this. Um, can you both introduce yourselves for the listeners and tell us a bit about what you do? Um, yeah, hi. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm, a, I'm a GP in Leeds in West Yorkshire. I'm also the father of a child who has a has a rare disease. So that's kind of part of the reason why I've developed an interest in this space. Um, I also I wear a few different hats. I'm involved with the charity for my son's condition. Uh, I'm also a GP with a specialist interest in clinical genetics with the Yorkshire Regional Genetics Service. And I have an academic post at the University of Nottingham as well. And then David. Yeah, hi, thanks, Sarah. Yes, so I'm uh, David Bartlett. I was a GP in North Bucks in the lovely little market town of Oney for 35 years. I retired from there about five or six years ago. Whilst I was there, I worked as an appraiser. I did various other jobs alongside that. I worked for five or six years in paediatrics and then started doing dermatology about 20 years ago. And I did a little bit of teaching for Red Whale a few years ago. Still love medicine despite being past retirement age. Well, it's great to capture both of your experiences, really. Um, so, in terms of rare diseases, um, it's an interesting topic to just have as a a one big group together. But um, how do we start this? So, how do we define rare diseases? Um, so, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously bringing together diseases simply by their kind of prevalence or their incidence is quite unique to the rare diseases. Um, we define rare diseases in the UK and the EU as uh, diseases that have a prevalence of not more than one in 2000. Um, but that does actually mean that although they're individually rare, because there's lots of them, more than 7,000, they're cumulatively actually quite common. Um, so they talk about lifetime incidence of about one in 17 for a rare disease. Um, or if you look at kind of point prevalence, population point prevalence at about 35 to 5.9%. So individually rare, but actually collectively common would be a, in a way, they're almost a key take home early on in this, in this talk. And what are the types of things that we're looking at? What are the kind of most common of the rare diseases? Sure. So you can kind of break rare diseases down a little bit into the more common ones, uh, and then the kind of ultra rare diseases. So in, in the, in, in the NHS, uh, one way they divide them is actually how they're commissioned. 
So um, the highly specialised commissioning occurs for diseases that are likely to affect fewer than 500 people in England, uh, and then they're, they're nationally commissioned as opposed to regionally commissioned. So that's, that might be one useful sub-definition within the rare disease space. And then you can talk about the kind of etiology of them. So a lot of them are genetic in the sort of traditional sense of Mendelian inherited genetic diseases, and somewhere between 70 and 80% of all rare diseases are genetic. Um, other big spaces, ones also include the autoimmune conditions. Uh, so large numbers of the conditions, autoimmune conditions would fall into that definition. And then there's also the rare cancers. So I think which we'll hear a bit more about later, but you know, every childhood cancer is a rare disease. Okay, yeah. So like you say, collectively common. Um, and then why are they important? Well, they're, they're certainly important to the patient because nearly always or often they're associated with delay in diagnosis and that brings its own frustration. Not only frustration for the patient, but frustration for the, the doctor and also concern for the doctor because I think all of us are concerned about our relationship with our patients and the potential for complaints and so on. So that's certainly one one aspect of the importance of them. And where in the case of the rare cancers, of course, there's always the concern about affecting the prognosis according to how quickly or otherwise the diagnosis might be made. So they're just immediate thoughts of mine. Over to you, Will, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd totally echo David's assessment of that the diagnostic delay. Um, that That is a very common feature across lots of rare diseases, regardless of cause. Um, the diagnostic delays typically, they talk about four years on average from symptom presentation, but many, you know, many patients with rare disease never get an accurate diagnosis. I think that's fair to say. Um, and they talk often about seeing five different clinicians and multiple misdiagnoses, inappropriate therapy treatments, you know, at vast cost, both financial, but also emotional and, you know, burden upon patients their families and carers yeah. and and also you know that they're often multi-systemic diseases you know these are often significant diseases that have a huge impact not only upon the individual affected but then their their wider wider circle and and as many of them are genetic some of these conditions you can have multiple affected members in one family um and diagnostic delay has that knock-on effect upon not having the opportunity to make decisions about family planning and all of those other things that come with a timely diagnosis yeah, and not only frustration, but of course, persistence of symptoms that may have been treated. So ongoing symptoms are very wearing for the patient. And it may develop other problems as a result of untreated symptoms, particularly chronic pain, of course. And so many far-reaching consequences of that delay. Mm. Can you give us some examples of where this has been important and how it's affected people's journeys? I think one may be quite a disease that might be quite useful to talk about to kind of give a little bit of an indication of this uh, is actually a, is a genetic condition that children get, which is not actually that rare as rare diseases go called Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. And this is a, an overgrowth syndrome. And children, often they're born with a very large birth weight um, and they sometimes get like a hemi-hypertrophy. They get overgrowth on one side of their body um, then get an enlarged tongue as well. Sometimes they get problems around the time of birth of hyperglycemia. And obviously, if these are really prominent and obvious, these get picked up sometimes in utero or in the early stages, but it's really variable. So sometimes it can be quite subtle. It can just be a baby who's a bit on the big side who has a large tongue, a macroglossia. And you know, there are many stories of parents going backwards and forwards. I can think of one person that I've met 
they'd gone backwards and forwards to their primary care doctor and to a paediatrician before someone had recognised this. And actually, sometimes these children grow into it, but there is a key bit with this condition, which actually is they're associated with um, a range of different paediatric onset cancers, including Wilms tumours of the kidneys and hepatoblastomas as well. So actually, if you get identified as having Beckwith, they all have three monthly ultrasounds as surveillance from birth till the age of seven. So even even if they have the milder phenotype of hemihypertrophy, they can still have that cancer predisposition. So, you know, timely recognition of, hang on, this doesn't seem quite right. Actually, your tongue is a bit big and you were on the bigger side. I wonder what might be going on. means actually, even if nothing else happens, they can have that regular surveillance and then, you know, better outcomes from from a cancer if they're one of the one in 10 children with this condition who develop cancer. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is the time to sort of bring the rabbit out of the hat from my own personal experience and and talk about neuroendocrine tumor in my case. Uh, so I, I I had a, a lengthy history. I think Will mentioned three to four years being the average delay in diagnosis of many rare conditions. And almost certainly in my case, I I had symptoms for about a good ten years of intermittent bouts of severe abdominal pain and. Uh, in retrospect, consulted, I think, four different gastroenterologists, irres- irrespective of the initial GP consultation, all of whom miss- missed the diagnosis. And I-, I had two admissions with acute abdominal pain, uh, was under consultant surgeons. And it- neuroendocrine tumour wasn't ever mentioned as a possibility. I think that's one of the one of the lessons that I'd like to point out a little bit later when it comes to us referring patients with symptoms that it can be quite useful to at least mention on our referral letter, has such and such a condition been excluded? And it wasn't until a, a fifth gastroenterologist got his colleagues to relook at my scans that had taken place some years before that the diagnosis was made. So it was it wasn't that I wasn't referred, it was that even at the stage of having been referred the diagnosis was was missed um so we you know we persistence of symptoms in my case abdominal pain and the difficulty is of course that abdominal pain is a common symptom i think that's one of the particular difficulties in neuroendocrine cancers it's a common symptom and irritable bowel syndrome is a common diagnosis and uh obviously busy general practice you're you're sticking with the common things occur commonly that's the mm. thing. And being able to spot that black swan or that uh, zebra amongst all the horses is always going to be a challenge. It's always going to be a challenge. I think, yeah, we were definitely going to ask about, and, and that's probably the right time to talk about how you get that balance right between not over-investigating every patient that has a common symptom like that, but also making sure that you do have the rare diseases on your radar and you're investigating appropriately for those um, people. Mm. Well, I, there's there's no doubt that we're in a, an incredibly difficult situation because overdiagnosis, over investigation is a is a huge problem. I, uh, and I think there's a, there's various factors that feed into that. One of them is the increased number of consultations that contacts that are taking place and the desire to to move quickly to make quick decisions. I think it's very tempting to jump straight to investigations. And I suppose because I'm an older doctor, I would still want to talk about older skills that are really important. So actually listening to the patient, building a relationship with the patient. There are, there are lots of conflicting things going on. There's more and more folks working locums in general practice, so there aren't the, the relationships that are being 
built that would perhaps help you to have a conversation with patients about the potential damage of investigating. So it, it, it's a big subject. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any easy answers. Uh, I do think if we're going to be scanning people for for non-specific symptoms, we need to be clear with the patient that the scans might turn up things that we don't know what to do about. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's one of the big problems. But on the other hand, uh, if you don't scan somebody like me, in my case, you won't make the diagnosis. So uh, general practice is difficult, and uh, we get we don't go into it because it's an easy specialty. I'd like to think we go into it because it's fascinating and challenging, and uh, that's one of the problems at the moment where so many of our colleagues are are in survival mode and when you're in survival mode you're not thinking about these tricky interesting rare things yeah i mean i you know absolutely it, it's it's a challenge to get it to get the balance right um i think what david said already you know if you don't uh if you're not looking at all for the zebras then you never you're not going to see them so you need to be inquisitive uh there's a kind of a a catch line for an organization called medics for rare disease which is said dare to think rare so you know if you if you don't step out there and in, then you, you you're not going to come up with that as a as a possibility um i also do think there's sometimes you know there is a risk of over investigation often though i often see people get over investigated having the same tests um you know you see this repetition of a cycle of testing and yes, the community of a lot, but actual fact, people are asking the same question repeatedly rather than potentially thinking slightly differently. You know, I would agree with David. I think, you know, general practice is really difficult and it's a challenge. But lots of us who are, who are you know, who go into this because we're generalists and like to think about that, you know, these are really interesting cases because these are often multi-systemic diseases, sometimes missed by secondary and tertiary care colleagues because you need to think not just single organ you need to sometimes think across both the biology and the chronology of the patient you have in front of you and and you know that's what general practice is it's being able to link those dots and and you know and, and there are lots of undiagnosed rare disease patients for whom it's actually not necessarily that subtle you know if you actually spent and started scrolling through the records you go oh wow well, you have had this and you've had that and you've had this yeah yeah you know and it's there in it's there in structured coded entries over a 10 or 15 year period and you go well that is a bit odd we know that you've got this and you've got epilepsy and you've got and then you had a, a duplex kidney and you know you've had this problem as well that's that is a bit odd and then moving from there and being inquisitive about what why that might be yeah i just wonder if inquisitiveness is almost beaten out of us with the emphasis on screening for relatively common diseases hypertension pre-diabetes and managing long-term conditions they're almost dominating the field just maintaining that inquisitiveness, that sort of Sherlock Holmesness. I, I, I love reading Poirot novels just to relax, and it's hilarious the things he notices that nobody else noticed. And uh, it's it's that kind of thing that is one of the great joys of general practice. I think. Yeah, you're right. It just feels like there isn't time for it anymore. Well, yeah, there's there's a sort of related but unrelated saying that I've often thought about that's said to be said by the Duke of Wellington or General Rommel depending on who you read, that uh, time spent on reconnaissance is never wasted, which is not exactly the same. But in other words, to take your time to assess the landscape before you go into battle is is never wasted. And that's what I think is being knocked out of us when we just arrive at the surgery at the beginning of the day, just thinking we've got to get through to the end of the day. And I, I, I just don't think you're going to have space in your in your thinking to be thinking about rare conditions. So 
some, somehow we've we've got to find a way to do that. Actually, to be fair, that is a theme that has come up in quite a few episodes. I would say, Sarah, um, would you agree about having time to to be curious about patients? Yeah, that step back definitely. Um, yeah, and it, it's tricky. One of the things that's occurring to me that you alluded to, David, as well as that part about the continuity and seeing patients. And I sometimes worry, am I feeding into somebody's anxiety where if I'm like, "Mm, I'm just not quite sure. And I think some of it will come with experience that there's like your antennae, the more you see somebody, the more your antennae can go up a bit. Like actually this is, this isn't right. Yeah. And I, I, the interesting thing about experience is that, you know, we, we very much, downgrade anecdotal medicine in favor of evidence-based medicine but actually it's the anecdotal stuff that develops your antennae strangely enough you think oh crikey 20 years ago that i saw somebody with sort of vaguely similar symptoms uh i always remember being on a wonderful course about 20 years ago at windsor great park which was one of the best courses i ever did as a gp because there was no curriculum or syllabus we were just grouped together as a bunch of gps that we'd never met before and were sort of locked in a room and just told to talk together and i happened to be in the room with michael o'donnell who you may or may not know who used to edit world medicine a a great thinker. and we were talking about evidence-based medicine and he said my trouble is i never see any evidence-based patients and uh, that's really stuck with me you know every patient is uniquely them Mm. and of course evidence-based medicine has all sorts of benefits but we we often learn by the unusual yeah. uh, that, that then triggers something else in our thinking to think i wonder if this might be an unusual thing um the next question that we had was about categorizing rare diseases i feel like we've maybe covered that but do you think there's anything else to add any other big hitters that you want to highlight to put on people's radar um no i guess maybe just re-emphasizing that of all the rare diseases 70 to 80 percent are genetic and also about 70 percent are have an exclusively pediatric onset i think what one of the things with when you're talking about them all being collectively common is rare diseases are defined by that one in two thousand prevalence but as a consequence obviously the ones that are the closer to one in two thousand drive a lot of that cumulatively common feature so actual fact about there's about 140 rare diseases um, which actually make up about 80% of all rare, of all rare patients. And those conditions include things like Guillain-Barre, Duchenne, cystic fibrosis, um, things like Friedrich's ataxia. They're some of the diseases which kind of are in that sort of lower boundary, you know, the one in 2,000 to one in 10,000 range. And obviously there are some rare diseases in the seven to 8,000 that have been described, which, you know, have only had a handful of cases recognised in the world. Yeah, you, if I may, you mentioned Guillain-Barre. I did have a patient diagnosed with Guillain-Barre, and it raises, I think, quite an interesting thing for me that I know this is contentious. With We often criticise patients for looking up things on Google and so on and so forth, but my feeling is why not use them as an ally rather than an adversary? And it takes me back to a patient many years ago. I'll tell you how long ago it is because it's pre-internet days when a, a lady came to see me with a crumpled up bit of paper upon which she'd written Guillain-Barre and said, I wonder if my husband might have Guillain-Barre. And he was a a milkman. And the only symptom was he was just finding it harder and harder to trudge around his his milk round. 
and he was developing weakness in his legs. And indeed, she was right. I didn't even know about his symptoms, so I hadn't had the chance to miss the diagnosis. Rare diseases are hard enough to diagnose anyway. Uh, and I know I know that there are certain patients, and we'll know them well, that will be that will be constantly looking up their conditions. And I appreciate that can work against both us and them. But I do think occasionally we have to accept that it can be very useful. Yeah. We're going to ask you, David, about where neuroendocrine cancers fit into this landscape. Yeah, well, I think neuroendocrine cancers, we used to call them carcinoid, as you as you probably remember from your med school days. And carcinoid means cancer-like. And I think the classifications changed over the last 10 or 20 years to to not use that term because they they are cancers to a greater or lesser degree, well differentiated and so on and so forth. There's no doubt that the incidence is increasing. And of course, with any increased incidence, you're always melding together, literally increase incidence of them, but also literally increase in detection rate. I'm afraid I don't know enough of the stats to know how they compare with other rare cancers. I do know that the the instance is said to be approximately eight per 100,000. So when when you say it like that, that doesn't sound many, but because the prognosis for many is good, the actual prevalence at any one time will, will be higher than other common cancers, cancer of the gastric carcinoma, for example, or, or pancreatic cancer. Um, there's said to be 6,000 diagnoses a year. And because it often does present, because the commonest form of neuroendocrine cancer is uh, bowel, small bowel, generally speaking, abdominal pain or diarrhea being the, the commonest presenting symptoms. And as I said earlier, it, it does make it difficult when both of those symptoms are common symptoms and to just sift out the, particularly the irritable bowel syndrome, which is what I was always diagnosed as having. Um, so neuroendocrine cancers, yes, increasing in instance, complex because it can sometimes run across a few different specialties. So yes, within the rare diseases and within the rare cancers, it's a relatively common one. I think it's fair to say that. Yeah. So that's interesting. So the gastric carcinoid and small bowel carcinoid are some of the most common. Yeah, the, the commonest ones would be small bowel usually sometimes diagnosed incidentally when being investigated for something else sometimes picked up as a result of specific screening for the condition with scans generally speaking biochemical markers aren't aren't helpful in the diagnosis uh, they're helpful in the management of the staging and the progression of the disease but and this is one of the challenges for GPS we can't really diagnose neuroendocrine cancers ourselves it is a it is a secondary uh, medicine diagnosis really predominantly with scans yeah so that yeah in terms of commonality it would be bowel then lung then pancreas then much much less common would be kidney ovaries adrenal anywhere where there's neuroendocrine cells i'm i'm not meant to be someone who asks questions but um i was going to ask a question so with the small bowel neuroendocrine tumors is it often that people as you say, maybe have an IBS presentation, they go to their GP, it, it seems to be getting worse, they get referred, they maybe get scoped, and potentially they might have other, you know, they'll sort of have a colonoscopy perhaps. Yeah. But then actual fact, obviously that's not imaging the small bowel, so unless you do a CT scan, you're not going to pick it up. Is that, is that? And then they go back to primary care, and they go, well, I've still got, and then everyone says it's IBS, and then they get worse, and then they go back. Is that the sort of sto a typical story? Is uh, uh, alas, it is, uh, Will, really. And as I say, even even if you get as far as having the scans, uh, 
uh, unfortunately, as in my case, the, the radiologists can miss it. And um, I'm just trying to remember the, the thing I read about a, a series of chest X-rays that was shown to 100 radiologists. Um, there were 60 chest X-rays shown, that's right. One of them had an absent left clavicle and only 50% of the radiologists noted it when they looked at the, the radiology of the, of the chest X-ray. That, that was just for, for general health screening. When the, radio, when the radiologists were told, please would they exclude cancer, 85% of the radiologists spotted the absent left clavicle. So it's almost as if you have to have your radar up in the first place. Uh, so even in our, you know, scanning colleagues, radiology colleagues, it, it's it's pretty, it's pretty difficult for them. And I presume they're under the same pressures that GPs are to get through as many reports as they can. And I, this is why I say I think one of my and, and the cancer charity that I'm involved with, one of the big messages we want to get across to GPs is when you make a referral for particularly undiagnosed abdominal pain, please put on your referral letter do you feel that net cancer should be excluded? Mm. And, it, and if you put it out there, then you've got to be thinking about it. And that's that's with specific reference to abdominal pain, by the way. Mm-hmm. Because other than um, the scans and the scopes for somebody with abdominal pain, are there more specific tests to find it? Well, the other thing to say that I've forgotten to say is that about 10% of, of small bowel neck cancers will have carcinoid syndrome. And in fact, that's actually what led to me getting yet another opinion, because one of my daughters said to me, Dad, you, your face goes red quite often and not always only ever after red wine. And indeed, even your hands go red sometimes. And so it was flushing, which is a you know a symptom of carcinoid syndrome, flushing, diarrhea and some people get wheezing. Once you've got the combination of abdominal pain and flushing, you would hope that most of us would have some kind of worm going away in our brain. Yeah, that something would click and we'd think, okay, yeah. Yeah, and thinking about my my other rare, my other rare condition was Bechet syndrome. And uh, I'd had mouth ulcers from the age of 10. And in my early 30s, I developed erythema nodosum. So it was really the combination of two symptoms. And I think that can be another little trigger for us. And I, I think the example you, you gave a minute ago, Will, where you've had a, a symptom that's gone on for quite a while, and then there's another symptom that appears to be unrelated. And it maybe should start to make us think, hang on a minute, I wonder if these two things are related. And indeed, in my case, yeah, it led to other eye symptoms and all sorts of other things. And uh, so an additional symptom on top of another long-standing symptom, I think, can be a little pointer to something else going on. Hmm. So then in general with rare diseases, you've mentioned some helpful tips already about when to suspect, such as when, Will, you were talking about the trying to connect the dots. We're both talking about trying to connect the dots, really. Um, any other bits of advice about how, how we keep our, our radar open or keep the net quite wide? What do you think and how do we go about investigating them? I think, yes, what we've talked about before about the kind of thinking across that chronology and biology, which is exactly what David just said um, is really useful. There's a few kind of easy traps to avoid. So one is sometimes don't mistake a clinical description of symptoms as a diagnosis. So 
you know, sometimes that is totally appropriate. But, you know, if someone has a learning disability, they have a learning disability, but there, there's an etiology for their learning disability, which is obviously could be all sorts of things. And again, even epilepsy, you know, epilepsy, you know, a lot of epilepsy is sort of idiopathic epilepsy, but there are people with epilepsy as a result of uh, syndrome and things. So sometimes thinking, well, hang on, why have they got this? Is it because they had a traumatic head injury? Is it because they've had something else? Or is it actual fact, maybe there is a, a unifying link for that? So that's a couple of things. Don't fall into that trap of clinical descriptions being substituted for diagnoses. We've talked a bit about kind of gut feeling as well, you know, when things just don't seem quite right. And then there are some kind of what they call, I talk about sort of reservoirs of undiagnosed patients. There's a range of different ones. Uh, one, there's an Australian group who put together a quite a useful mnemonic um, to try and think about when people might have rare genetic diseases. It's called family genes. So family is thinking about three generations of family, taking a three-generation family history. Uh, and are there features or diagnoses that seem to be occurring across that three-generation family history? So that's a family. And then for the G of the genes, that's groups of congenital anomalies. So in common congenital anomalies are by definition common. So that can be quite mild things like curving of the finger clinodactyly or, you know, partial syndactyly fusion of fingers or slightly abnormal ears or a cleft, things like that. But actually, if you have two or more congenital anomalies, actually, the likelihood there's a syndromic cause for this is significantly elevated. So that's that's a G, that's groups. E is extreme or exceptional presentations of common conditions, uh, things like recurrent miscarriage or kind of unusually severe, severe reactions to infections. And that might be associated with kind of um, immunodeficiencies, but also some of the metabolic conditions, you know, time of stress. That's where actually their metabolic conditions go off, and actually they're disproportionately unwell with relatively minor illnesses or periods of starvation and things like that. So we've done the G, we've done the E, the N, neurodevelopmental delay. Children, but then also, you know, as they transition into adults as well, who had neurodevelopmental issues, and if they have any any suggestion of regression, then that's highly suggestive, you know. And regression may be young young onset dementias, for example. The next E is sort of again, another extreme or exceptional kind of but extreme or exceptional pathology. So, you know, people who have things like we're getting back to neuroendocrine treatments, but if someone has, you know, someone that has a pheochromocytoma, well, they can just have a pheochromocytoma, but they often, and indeed a lot of the neuroendocrine tumors can be associated with other cancer predisposition things as well. So sometimes thinking about that and then surprising laboratory values, you know, you, when you get that triglyceride that's through the roof or, or, you know, more common things like a cholesterol that's very high. And I think most people are very aware of familiar hypercholesterolemia. But despite everyone should be, be aware of that, the majority of people with familiar hypercholesterolemia aren't diagnosed in this country, and they're still having heart attacks in their 30s and 40s. Uh, and that's the index case that then cascades across the family. So, um, so that's quite a useful framework for family genes to, to you know, to, to try and kind of have your radar potentially switched on for rare patients. And then thinking about um, the management side of things, um, obviously it's going to be different for all of the different rare diseases, but do you have any thoughts that you can share about um, generally how primary care clinicians can help um, patients that have rare diseases? Well, hope, yeah, hopefully patients with rare conditions will be by and large under specialists inevitably because they're the folk that are seeing 
more of them. But I, I, I guess I still think as a GP, we we have the sort of role of the conductor of the orchestra to a degree of pointing people towards different resources. We can be a sounding board, of course, for discussions that patients have had with their specialist team. But certainly most rare conditions, you'll know better than me probably will, most rare conditions have pretty good support groups. But if we've established a good relationship with a with a patient, I think they'll still want to come and talk to us about conversations that have had that they've had about treatment options, for example. Uh, so I think we still play a very important role, even though most management will be way, way beyond what we're prescribing and recommending ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think David made some great points there. I would absolutely emphasize, you know, that for lots of rare diseases, there are patient support groups. Um, there's some kind of umbrella organizations. So Genetic Alliance has a a sister organization called Rare Disease UK. You know, if you're not sure where to go, if you go via their webpage, they, it can often direct you to, um, you know, disease-specific support groups. You know, a lot of these conditions as well are have a significant impact, as we've already talked about, upon the patient, but also the wider family, you know, and general practice is family medicine. So it's thinking about the impact more, more widely, you know, and some of that might be identifying family planning opportunities hang on you know you've come in to talk to this and your brother had a child affected by this it, do, do you want to go and speak to a genetic counselor in advance uh, you know and, and have that conversation and and i think in primary care itself you're right often there's specialist services for these but there's there's two things there's a kind of double-edged sword to that so one thing is most patients should be at the highly specialized service if there is one but not everybody is now that might be a positive decision that patient has made, but it sometimes isn't. And for some conditions, access to the treatment is you have is a requirement that you're actually looked after at one of the specialist centres. So sometimes, if if there is a really rare condition you've not heard about, but you kind of and you have a patient of that, and they're looked after by your neurologist or your district general, it might be worth just saying, "Hang on, is there a national specialist service for this? And does my patient know there is?" Because sometimes patients are hung on to by clinicians when they probably shouldn't be. So that's one thing they can do. And then the other thing is, and this is a bit of a bugbear of mine as well, is diagnostic overshadowing. You get a big diagnostic label. And then everyone assumes the problem is a consequence of that. Uh, and actual fact, for lots of patients with these rare, especially multisystemic neurological conditions as well, they still get urinary tract infections and they get constipated and they get respiratory tract and they get depressed uh, and they don't get picked up. And if you, in actual fact, if often if you treat you know, chronic constipation in someone with a advanced neurological disease, the, the improvement can be vast. I mean, if you've ever done this in someone with Parkinson's disease, suddenly, yes, yeah. suddenly, you know, it's like you've given them the, the, the perfect combination of Parkinson therapy, but actually you've just treated their constipation. They've suddenly improved. So diagnostic overshadowing is a is a big thing. And then one quick, easy thing to do in primary care as well is, and I think we all do this, but I just emphasize this, Good summary letters, you know, when there's that perfect summary letter, you know, from the community paediatrician about that child, link to it on, you know, on the home page on the patient's EHR. And, and for conditions where there's sometimes emergency protocols, so quite a lot of the metabolic conditions, which are all rare diseases, there's actually emergency protocols. So knowing what you're meant to do 
at certain points you know i think we'll be familiar with that with people with addisons and stuff and how they have to increase their treatments and stuff but actually linking that so not just you know but you know in out of hours when you're opening the record about someone you've never uh, you've never heard of heard of with a condition you've never heard of there's a nice summary letter to know how it affects that patient and that's what we don't need to get so twitchy that they're tachypneic and their sats are only 92 because actually they're never better than 92 because yeah. you know for whatever reason so that there's some kind of easy easy things to do that's very helpful and i, and I think also the charities will often have very good handheld information that the patient can have with them if you take the example of neuroendocrine cancer the carcinoid crisis which is a, a worry to any patient who's got secretory neuroendocrine cancer just to have that little card in their wallet that says in cases of carcinoid crisis the local a department as you say on the on the front page of the notes if necessary it can just give a level of reassurance to the patients as well that although this is rare there's a straightforward protocol for managing the particular crisis that may arise. So, yeah, great point. And I think on the overshadowing, uh, Will, depression is often missed in the context of other conditions. And depression in its own right needs treating and managing. I always remember when I when I saw a specialist about my Bechet syndrome, uh, my wife came with me and she, and she said to him, is it is it caused by stress? And he said, well, just about everything is aggravated by stress but it's not caused by stress. And so it's too simplistic to, to attribute a condition to stress. It'll always be stressful mm. having a, a long-term condition. Such good points. We're going to ask next about other recommended resources for practitioners and patients. They're really good resources you've already mentioned and we'll link to the ones that you've already talked about. Any other things that you think would be useful? So the answer is that there's actually lots of resources out there. So we've obviously touched on Genetic Alliance and then all of the, the patient support groups for different charities. There's another really good one called Unique. Um, so they produce really good leaflets for chromosomal diseases. I touched on it earlier on. There's, there is a charity called Medics for Rare Disease, which has some really nice education pieces. More And they, they try and pull away from getting bogged down into the minutiae of each individual disease because i think sometimes that can be a barrier to or there's so many and they're so rare i'm never going to see it Mm. you know which can be counterproductive to actually saying well hang on this is cumulatively they have a these are common diseases this is like asthma as a prevalence similar to asthma so you, you should be knowing about this and those broader messages that we've put across today and then specific stuff about diseases omim is really good geneticists use it all the time but that's quite useful if you want to find good information and links into stuff um, there's a whole series of publications called gene reviews and they're really detailed any kind of rare genetic disease if you type into google the disease gene reviews um, it's like a series of publications and then a couple of things which we haven't talked about is there are some kind of rare disease search engines which if you're trying to formulate a differential or wondering what might be going on, um, Orphanet have one on their web page. But perhaps the kind of easiest one I think to use is called Find Zebra. And it's essentially like a like a Google. You can type in, you know, eight, you could type in oral ulcers, you could type in um, you know, other clinical features, and it will give you a differential. So that so that can sometimes help formulate your thinking, you know, you think, oh hang on, there is something going on. I wonder what it might be. And it maps quite nicely. Wow. That's really useful. Wow. 
Uh, that, that's a fantastic answer, Will. I, I'd obviously put in a big plug for Neuroendocrine Cancer UK. They've got a wonderful, really wonderful uh, website, as as many uh, other rare conditions have. But yeah, ncuk.org. We've got um, an e-learning thing on the Royal College of GPs website as well. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, any other learning points from this talk today? Anything else that you want us to take away? I think it's that it's the pressure of, of of the way we're behaving as GPs at the moment that's the big problem, and just to have that space to step back and just be interested again in in patients as people. I know that many practices have stopped having the mid-morning coffee break where they just meet together for 15 minutes and just muse on anything and everything. And in retrospect, that's I insisted on it the whole 35 years I was in practice. And in retrospect, you learn so much in those kind of situations. So I would, I would want to encourage that uh, curiosity, that interest, that inquisitiveness. Um, just about everybody's got a backstory we could just start again being interested in people as people uh, we will then move on to being interested in why they've got these obscure persistent undiagnosed symptoms uh, absolutely i mean i just for you know the so when i do my kind of genetics work you know so we we take quite a very thorough family history and draw out the pedigree but every time i do it, i go why don't i do this in primary care you know you're not just are oh, you're asking about the syndrome it's all it's all the uh, complexity of the relationships yeah the the challenge we have which is not the purpose of this this thing is actually how <laughs> do we record that in the primary care record in a way yes, that is interpretable yeah. and that's a big there's lots of us wrestling with that because actually that would be really useful yeah my main learning point as i say is just to has it has a rare condition been excluded to try and find some way of phrasing that i think on a referral letter yeah that so that dare to think rare that be inquisitive um you know is there a more plausible explanation for a patient's combination of problems is a real important take home in the kind of diagnostic space and then in the management space diagnostic overshadowing avoid that trap uh, and also yeah just don't underestimate the impact of good generalist care for these patients with complex diseases that are looked up looked after in a big ivory tower often you find that because they're looked after in a highly specialized service they're not well linked into local services so all the simple stuff has been forgotten you know they haven't been referred for continence products and they're buying them themselves they're not linked into wheelchair services you know they've missed the normal support services they would do if they were seen by you and referred to your local um neurologists those things can sometimes get missed so just sometimes stepping back and thinking more generally top to bottom doing good journalist care what are your problems and what are the things that we can do to help with each of these sort of relatively simple things but the things that probably are having as big an impact as their underlying underlying diagnosis yeah, well, they're really good messages yeah yeah thank you so much to both of you for um spending your evening coming and speaking to us about this it's been fascinating and i'm really glad that we got to do this one as a topic um because it's a bit different and i've really enjoyed it thank you very much thank you so it was it was really um, amazing to be able to chat to um will and david about such a, a vast and really interesting topic what did you take away um, today sarah 
Yeah, it was really lovely. I, I was quite interested in how they both came in to be fascinated by the topic and then how it kind of clusters together actually because it's there's such disparate conditions and I and I was like really wanting to get into a lot of the details. I wanted to go back over for chromocytoma and carcinoid and things like that. And it was interesting that Will was talking about we really need to sort of have that step back and how we as GPs can kind of keep that diagnostic net quite wide and yeah the radar yeah the radar quite wide and yeah just all the different tips on on how to manage as well were really interesting no definitely i think i was i was kind of just fascinated by the um the cumulatively common aspect of it yeah. um the fact that he said the 3.5 percent to 4.9 percent point prevalence at any time um so as a general set of conditions they're really really common actually and just things like you imagine that when you think about rare diseases it's going to be stuff that you've never heard of mm. um, but the fact that every childhood cancer is classified as a rare disease things like the Guillain-Barre rare disease and stuff that that is actually quite yeah. common um when we think about it, it actually falls into the rare disease category um and also the fact actually that 70% um, have a paediatric onset. Yeah. Um, I thought was really interesting because we didn't mention it in the talk, but even just having that as a flag about going back to stuff that started in childhood might be quite interesting in terms of picking up rare disease. Yeah, the flags in general that they were talking about were really interesting. They're thinking about just looking back. I think that time to try and step back, I sometimes do it with the advice and guidance or, or generally doing a referral you still don't have time, but I still sort of trying to work out and put together the story again is often really interesting and things will start to click and be like, oh, actually, um, yeah. what was the acronym he used? We'll use the family genes. Family it? genes. Mm. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah. And and the phrase that he said as well about um, across biology and chronology. Yes. I think that was quite interesting as well. Um, and even just you mentioning about the referrals, the bit that um, David had said about putting in your referral if you're thinking about a rare disease because of well it'll just put it on the radar of the specialist that you're referring to so yeah thank you all so much for listening we hope you really enjoyed the talk with both of them and as ever if you have any feedback for us either on the survey or on itunes or where are all the links or our email address they're all on the episode description along with a lot of the links that we'll try and keep in there from what we've talked about in the episode till next time on primary care knowledge boost This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.